Welcome to Covalent Conversations. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Rahul Sujanani. I'm going to be co-piloting this podcast with my colleague, Fred Rivers. He's here with me right now. Uh, as you listen to this podcast, you'll see us highlight the science and engineering of macromolecules and polymers and their relations to other topics of general interest. Um, and so we're really just trying to aim to make these topics accessible for you guys, whether you're you know, working in this field professionally or a student or just have a general interest in science. Um, and so we'll give a little bit of background now about, about us, you know, to introduce ourselves to you. Um, so again, my name's uh, Rahul. I'm a PhD student at uh, UT Austin studying chemical engineering, and in particular I work with uh, ion transport uh, in charged membranes and studying how uh, ions diffuse in these materials uh, as well as how they, they partition into these materials. Yeah, and I'm uh, Freddie Rivers. I'm also a current PhD student at uh, UT Austin in chemical engineering, and my work uh, primarily focuses more on the synthesis of polymer films and membranes uh, for use at targeting specific solutes or resources for recovery or capture. Yeah, yeah. so we'll, we'll be talking about topics related to what we do, but, you know, things that are also a little bit uh, outside our, our box as well, and, you know, we'll be talking uh, to people in the field who are established, as well as new researchers, just to get, you know, discussions with them, hopefully in a casual setting. Um, so we're really excited about that. Um, and so I guess... Uh, seems like we're ready for our, inner, our inaugural podcast then. Yes, sir. All right. Completely I agree. guess we'll, we'll get it then. Let's get it going. So today we're joined by Professor Benny Freeman from UT Austin. Uh, he's the William J. Bill Murray Endowed Chair in Engineering at the Maqueda Department of Chemical Engineering here at UT. He earned his PhD at UC Berkeley in 1988, uh, was a postdoctoral fellow at Paris, uh, joined NC State's Chemical Engineering Faculty in 1989, uh, before finally moving uh, to UT Austin in 2002. Uh, Professor Freeman's research in polymer science and engineering is detailed in over 450 publications with this group primarily focusing on small molecule transport and polymers and developing structure property relationships for water purification and gas separation membrane materials. So welcome to the, the show, Professor Freeman. How are you doing today? Yeah, well, how are you guys? Fantastic. Doing, doing good. Doing good. It's Friday. Great. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess before we, we delve, delve into the main topic, um, do you mind, you know, going over, you know, some of your background, you know, getting into science, you know, at an early age and then, you know, becoming a professor and why you, you know, wanted to pursue that uh, career? Yes. So I, uh, I grew up on a, a farm in North Carolina and uh, it uh, taught me about uh, chemistry because you could see uh, chemistry occurring in the uh, in the fields and with the crops and so forth. I had an interest in that from early on. And um, my father ran a farm supply store. And so I would uh, go with him from as early as I can remember. And eventually um, when I was about 12 years old, started working there. And this was before calculators. And so you had to, uh, you know, add up the uh, customer's bill by hand. And so I was pretty good at math. and. Uh, and uh, when I went to college, I uh, looked at combining those skills in chemistry and math, and that led me into chemical engineering. Uh, as an undergraduate, I ran into um, a young assistant professor, then a um, guy, guy named uh, Bill Koros, and I did undergraduate research in his lab. It was all about membranes. And um, when I uh, first learned that um, a sheet of what appears to be uh, just uh, impermeable or, or non-porous plastic could actually pass uh, small molecules through it. 
and furthermore that it could separate those molecules with uh, differences in sizes that were fractions of an angstrom I was hooked on the field and I've never been able to uh, to get away from it um, I uh, 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 after graduate school, looked at going into the industry or teaching and decided to uh, give teaching uh, a try just to see how <laughs> it would go. And uh, here we are 30 years later or so. That's all. It's gone faster than I could possibly imagine. Couldn't, couldn't get out of school, I guess. I've never gotten out of school. It's, <laughs> and they tell me I should stay in school. Yes. They, tell, they tell the kids that, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I did. It's, <laughs> I probably will never. Uh, graduate from school <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome um yeah so you, you already mentioned you know you have a great expertise in, in membranes for so many years uh, so our main topic today will actually be going over the history of membrane science uh, and i guess you did a little bit of this but could you give for the lay audience uh, a high level description of what a membrane is and some of the applications that that they use them for today um so generally speaking a, a membrane would be a, uh, a material that uh, separates um, uh, two regions of space and uh, generally as a result of uh, concentration differences or, uh, um, or electric potential differences, molecules will move in response to those, uh, those differences. And you can use it, for example, to affect separations or to keep stuff uh, in that you want to uh, keep in or keep things out that you want to keep out of a, a package or a material. Um, and they come in all uh, shapes and sizes. In terms of applications, they'll go from things as simple as, um, um, you know, plastic soda bottles at the store are designed to keep uh, carbon dioxide in so that the soda doesn't go flat. Uh, a lot of the food packaging nowadays uh, is smart in the sense that it lets some molecules through but not others and this helps uh, extend the shelf life of uh, produce in particular but also meat uh, much longer than uh, than it could be done when i was growing up as a child um, if you fly on uh, uh, on airplanes something most of us haven't done much of recently but probably will <laughs> going forward um, most of the commercial airplanes, uh, jet aircraft today, have a membrane system on them to uh, um, remove oxygen from uh, air and then pass a, a stream of nitrogen-enriched air uh, into the fuel tank to help uh, alleviate explosion or reduce risks of uh, fire on, uh, on commercial aircraft. Um, they're used at large scale for desalinating water, uh, particularly in, in drier and, and hotter parts of the world uh, through reverse osmosis. Um, you'll find uh, membranes uh, in, uh, in all living organisms. We have membranes around every cell in our body, uh, as do plants and, and every other animal, regulating the flow of uh, various components into and out of the, uh, mm -hmm. the cells. Um, if uh, you have uh, uh, friends or loved ones who uh, suffer from uh, uh, kidney failure, uh, hemodialysis is a membrane process that uh, can extend the life of people uh, by filtering out toxins uh, out of the blood uh, if a person's kidneys are no longer able to, uh, to do so. So those are just a, a few applications where you might uh, uh, find membranes around. Yeah. 
And so, you know, most of these, these polymers today are, are coming from synthetic, uh, you know, chemistries, right? So you're, these aren't all natural polymers today, but that they use in industry, is that, is that correct? Yeah, by and large, they're synthetic materials. Uh, there are some, um, I guess, uh, naturally derived polymers like cellulose acetate that are uh, that are used for applications uh, a little bit in desalination, like water purification, and some in uh, gas purification, like natural gas purification. But by and large, most of the membranes are are uh, uh, synthetic polymers or or plastics. That's not to say some natural uh, biological operations have inspired a lot of types of research, such as like I know a big one, if I were, like potassium sodium ion channel that occurs naturally in our body, something we've been trying to replicate. Or something if we could pull off that kind of selective ability it would be huge but somehow our body's yeah. able to do it but we can't synthetically yeah mimic it completely well yet yes yeah, so there's of. a lot of uh, a lot of examples of that so the ion channels um water channels in the body are uh are governed by uh, structures called aquaporins and there's uh there's a lot of interest in being able to uh reproduce the function of uh, those types of structures so that you could remove water, but uh, virtually nothing else from the mixture to purify it. Um, so yeah, those are uh, biological applications of uh, membranes have been around since the, um, since the very beginning of, uh, you know, of life on earth. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that, that uh, overview here. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll get into the, the main part, and I hope this will be entertaining, you know, talking about the history of membrane science, getting some of the stories and the, the tidbits here of some of the, the cool characters that are that are part of the story. Um, it's going to be a nice review. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll be it's good for nice. us. Um, you know, hopefully uh, Freddie and I don't get in too much trouble. Uh, <laughs> Professor Friedman's actually our advisor, so uh, we, we hope we don't add any uh, years on to our graduation plan here. But uh, done enough of that myself already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess maybe, you know, you could talk about some of the, the origins of, of the field, you know, with, with historical, you know, investigations of, you know, why are they looking at transport and polymers? When was this happening? Who were, who were the key players really here at the beginning uh, of, this, of this, you know, field? Yeah, so the, the uh, well, the, uh, the first recorded um, membrane uh, work that, that we know of is, um, uh, by a, uh, a fellow in France, the uh, Abbe uh, uh, Jean-Antoine Nollet. And um, uh, at that time, uh, a lot of uh, the, what we would call scientific research today actually happened in the church because this is where people were educated. And, um, and the Abbe Nollet, for, for whatever reason, was, uh, was wondering if, um, uh, if the, uh, by degassing a solution of uh, wine, uh, whether it could stop it from uh, uh, bubbling when he or when he heated it up, um, and uh, in preparing for those experiments, he had uh, had filled a uh, um, filled a, a, a small glass vessel with uh, with his wine, and then, uh, as you might do, that uh, he didn't have saran wrap to put over mm -hmm. the top of it. Uh, but he put a uh, uh, a piece of uh, pigskin bladder and mm -hmm. tied it on, and and then uh, to make doubly sure that nothing would get into it, submerged it in a, a bucket of water, uh, and was very surprised to come back and find uh, that the uh, 
this pigskin bladder had uh, uh, had distended out of the uh, uh, off the the top surface of uh, his uh, his container with the wine in it, and when he pricked it, he uh, the membrane he got a, a stream of liquid that uh, shot up several feet in the air. Oh, wow. um, he reversed the process and and put the the wine in the uh, in the bucket and water inside the um, uh, inside his little glass uh, tube or vessel again covered it with this pigskin bladder and saw the opposite effect that the, the membrane would extend inward to the uh, uh, to the uh, 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 to the glass uh, cylinder and uh, this was the first example we know of, of uh, what we would refer to today as osmosis the membrane uh, this pigskin bladder is uh, uh, more permeable to uh, to water than it is to alcohol there's a uh, concentration gradient from pure alcohol to the alcohol water mixture and when the wine is in the uh, is in the little cylinder um, and it's surrounded by water the water comes in and, and forces the um, forces the uh, membrane to distend and when we change the order of the ingredients it goes the opposite uh, way around this is uh, uh, very similar the process of osmosis that occurs um, by which uh, things like trees and plants get uh, water uh, up into their uh, up into their leaves and so that's i believe as as far as i know that was the first recorded um, example of uh, 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 semi-permeability of membranes and that was back in the i believe the 18th century some wow. point wow. did he did he make any like terminology for his observation i don't know if it was Osmosis, or was there another word that he used at the time, or, or not? I, I don't remember the uh, the details of it. I don't I don't remember a lot of uh, very much in the way of terminology coming out of that uh, uh, out of that particular mm -hmm. work. Um, the uh, uh, somewhat later, uh, Sir Thomas Graham was studying uh, uh, natural rubber uh, membranes, which are like. Uh, little party balloons that you would get mm -hmm. today to, uh, you know, for a birthday party or something, fill them with helium or whatnot. And uh, he found that those, um, those balloons would, uh, once he filled them with different gases, would uh, deflate at different rates depending on the gas. And uh, this was in the uh, middle of the 19th century, roughly. Um, and uh, he used his observations to formulate what we now know as the solution fusion model for transport through uh, polymers. And that's the dominant uh, physical picture by which uh, small molecules are believed to migrate through dense polymers today. It's a remarkable piece of work. Yeah, wow. Could also make a, a neat party trick, I guess, too, with the balloons, but... Um... And then how fast they... Expel out of the balloons. You'd be sitting there a while watching them just deflate. Yeah, that would that would require a lot <laughs> I of think, I don't know if these six year olds would be like bored by then or not. We find yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, if I don't know about the children. <laughs> I don't know if it'd be a fun party if you're planning uh, experiments beforehand for days and days. Yeah, and well, days. what would the name of yeah. that clown be? Oh, what would his name? <laughs> that would that would be something. Um, but yeah, that's that's nice that you brought up. You know, the the solution diffusion mechanism, obviously a a key component to our understanding of polymers today and, and transporting them so that's absolutely you know very very early point and so what was what year was this around i mean approximately it was, it was around 1850 something okay. like that yeah okay um yeah yeah i mean it's it's interesting to interesting to see that some of these early scientists are 
they're still doing the scientific process, you know, from, mm-hmm. from so from so long ago. So it's it's cool to see that. Yeah, um, scientific following scientific method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the groundwork. The groundwork for for people like uh, me and Freddie. So hopefully we can live up to, to these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We have we have other experiments with wine that we do. So. <laughs> And what's that other stuff? Claw. Yeah, that's, claw, claw. That's that's what the yeah, groundwork. Yeah, the white claw groundwork for all types of strange seltzers that aren't wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Came out of the woodworks. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. No, it's no worries. Okay. I did have a kind of a fundamental question with the pig bladder experiments. Mm-hmm. So, when the concentrations of ethanol and water reached equilibrium, it distended or extended depending on where they were. But it it reached it reached a point where the mechanical strength of the pig bladder wasn't uh, overcome by the stresses caused by it. So let's say it's a weaker material; it would have snapped before it reached equilibrium if the material Absolutely. was weaker, right? So we don't know if it had reached equilibrium, and the equilibrium wasn't a strong enough force of water entering it to cause it to completely snap. That's right. That's right. Right. Okay. But yeah, yeah, and and if you have uh, also um, if you have a large enough um, volume of like water outside the wine, it would essentially fill into the container uh, practically without limit, mm-hmm. slower and slower as the, the wine got diluted more and more. Right. Um, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop until, you know, until, until it gave. Yeah. Until something gave or until the concentrations of the components were exactly equal on both mm-hmm. sides of the membrane. Got it. Seems like you have experiments you want to do at home, Freddie. I was just curious, like, I mean, how strong is pig bladder, and how big were these buckets that it didn't break? You know what I mean? Yeah, but, I do. I do wonder how you know how thick that kind of membrane is. I don't. I don't know. You know, today's membranes are you know fairly thin. You know, so it's yeah. You know, hard to imagine what these things look like. Well, it's been coating in the eighteen fifties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, these aren't you know, you know, micron to, to nanometer type you know films over here. These are probably thicker, I assume, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess. Okay. So we've, we've heard about, uh, the Abbe Nolay heard about, uh, you know, the next, next few people. Um, so now we're, now we're in, you know, I guess the, the middle of the 1800s, the late 1800s. And so, you know, what's, what's going on from here, you know, are, are we, um, you know, learning more about, uh, the physics of these things? Are we still making empirical observations? What's, what's sort of happening in the field now? Yeah, so following on to some of Graham's uh, work, a, uh, uh, a fellow named uh, Fick um, um, was uh, studying uh, Graham's, uh, uh, some of Graham's experiments where he had, um, uh, had uh, watched the uh, diffusion of uh, uh, salt uh, between two aqueous solutions on either side of a porous uh, glass Print, like a membrane, and uh, uh, and Fick was uh, critical of Graham's work, saying that you know it's a pity to make all these nice measurements, but as, not as most reviewers are, right? Exactly, <laughs> reviewer number three, reviewer number three, Fick, and and you know so it's a pity to have all these nice experiments, but not to have any uh, fundamental uh, theory uh, mm. behind it. And he proceeded uh, um, to postulate what we now know as fixed law, which is the law that governs diffusion of matter um, very broadly, not just in membranes, but uh, in general, all sorts of, uh, uh, for all sorts of situations. And he proposed it uh, in analogy with Fourier's law for heat conduction and Ohm's law for um, uh, electricity. And so 
uh, and it would also be uh, uh, it would also be in it, uh, similar to Newton's law for uh, for viscosity. So there's a, a relationship between a driving force for uh, transport of matter, energy, uh, etc., and uh, and the rate at which that transfer occurs, and that became the basis of Fick's law, which is the underpinnings of our modern. Uh, all of our modern understanding of uh, diffusion started from uh, from that point. That would be towards the end of the uh, 19th century, towards the end of the 1800s. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, 100, 120 years ago, so well, a little more than that. Um, and so how, you know, well, I guess, you know, what was, what was Fick's background a little bit like? I mean, was he, you know, a... I know he wasn't, a, you know, a clergyman like you know the Abbe Noé, so he was, you know, uh, a trained scientist, correct? Yes, as far as I recall, he was um, uh, he he was trained in the medical field, and at the time that he was uh, undertaking these studies, he was um, uh, actually serving as uh, um, in a uh, um, uh, I believe a medical school uh, mm -hmm. dissecting people. Um, so he had a he had a background in medicine. Um, was involved in uh, also in some of the very first uh, contact lenses mm. to improve vision. Those were uh, made out of glass. You can imagine the glass uh, contact lenses. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I hate them uh, the way they are now. They're not comfortable enough. Yeah, I get scared <laughs> wearing contact lenses now. Yeah, yeah. putting glass in your eyes, they right. couldn't be healthy. <laughs> and the doctors telling you to do that. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of rabbits were uh, used in those studies as well. <laughs> yeah. And so how, you know, how old were some of these guys when they were doing, you know, these, these measurements and making these laws? I mean, were they, you know, a little older, a little younger? Yeah, um, I think it, it varies. I don't know about, uh, uh, about the Abbe Nolay and uh, there's a little bit more, I think, known about Mitchell and, and Fick. Fick was a young man. Uh, I don't remember if he's less than 30, but uh, he's in, you know, it's about that time. Um, you know, so they, uh, these were people who had, uh, you know, took a, a fresh look at the field and, and uh, you know, and had uh, creative and original uh, ideas and, and got started on it uh, early yeah. in, their, in their lives. Yeah, the reason I had asked is I've, you know, as I've gone through some of the literature myself, I've noticed a lot of people's, you know, laws or theories will come out when they're rather young, mm -hmm. um, I guess, because they're sort of new in the field. They're, you know, saying, oh, that, that's wrong. That's, that doesn't make sense. Let me, you know, make a framework that makes sense. Um, and, you know, you always look at it and it's like they're 27, 28 when they come <laughs> up with this law and I'm, I'm looking at my age and I'm like, when's, when's my law going to come exactly. out? You know, yeah. like, it's time. Let's get so. started. Probably there. He probably already has an asset. Why we aren't in lab. Yeah. Yeah. This. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Why aren't you in the lab? It's the safest place in the world. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is, these are the early, you know, the guys who are laying the groundwork for, observations now we have you know fundamental laws to explain those observations um so i guess now we're progressing to the 20th century um mm -hmm. you know the 1900s yeah. so what's going on on here with, with polymers and i mean are we still looking at you know transport in polymers or what's sort of the field evolving like at this point yeah so by yeah so by this time um you know there, there are no uh, there are no commercial applications the way we would envision them today. Um, one of the uh, one of the big 
revolutions in the field um, was in the uh, uh, mid-teens and uh, 20s and 30s, and this was the advent of uh, synthetic polymers. Um, in fact, 2020 was uh, the 100th anniversary of Stoudinger's uh, um, proposal of the macromolecular hypothesis that, uh, that actually one could synthetically grow large molecules and, and that large molecules existed in, in nature, what we would call polymers. Um, before this, they, uh, there'd been no concept of uh, uh, essentially high molecular weight materials in nature or, or made in a laboratory. And, and the assumption was that these were just uh, uh, colloidal assemblies mm -hmm. of, uh, of small molecule materials that were stuck together through non-covalent forces. And um, Stoudinger uh, advanced this uh, macromolecular hypothesis. Uh, people like uh, Wallace Carruthers in the basic research labs at DuPont were um, doing uh, uh, experimental studies showing uh, that one could make, uh, make polymers synthetically uh, and Carruthers uh, had uh, working with him a fellow uh, named Paul Flory, um, and uh, Flory would later go on to win the Nobel Prize for his uh, his work in understanding the theory of large molecules and statistical mechanics of uh, uh, of how those materials behave. Um, but the the key uh, uh, a key hypothesis um, that turned out to be very wrong. Uh, was people said, well, you couldn't have, you couldn't grow a high molecular weight material um, because once the uh, material added a few of the monomer units or got a little bit long, its mobility would get so low that it could never move around or diffuse around to find more uh, monomers. And so that would, that there, so macromolecules couldn't be made and couldn't exist in nature for that reason. And uh, Florian Carruthers showed fairly convincingly that, um, that in fact what happened was as the molecules grew synthetically from their basic reactants monomers, that uh, once the polymer mobility slowed down, the monomers could still move around just fine and get to the end of the polymer chain that was growing. And, um, you know, and, and so they showed that uh, above a certain molecular weight, the uh, rate of growth of these uh, polymer change didn't go to zero, but it went to a constant like, value that was plenty fast enough to grow uh, uh, synthetic materials. And, and so out of that, uh, from you know, Carruthers' work uh, came uh, nylons, so polyamides, and uh, polyesters were another big contribution uh, that he made. And so you'll, uh, at that time, the DuPont company uh, commercialized those materials and became uh, uh, very uh, big in synthetic polymers, particularly the uh, polyesters and, and uh, polyamides that you know, originated from Carruthers' work. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, in, in industry, they're, they're kind of doing these fundamental studies, I guess, because there's a large connection of them being used practically at that point as you know, synthetic polymers are, are being developed. So that's, that's cool to see. Yeah, uh, and then that, that uh, Mark, that really opens up the range of materials that could be studied for all kinds of purposes, membrane purposes and mechanical properties, uh, you know, uh, making records, you know, mm. Bakelin making uh, his uh, phenol formaldehyde, Bakelite, 
um, that was used in things like phon 78 phonograph records. Mm. Um, so there were lots of uh, lots of synthetic materials coming along for a lot of new applications. Mm. Yeah, very, very exciting time in, in polymer science, clearly. Um, Absolutely. And so I guess so now we're, we're learning a little bit more about you know, synthetic polymers and you know, their, their emergence uh, at this time. Um, so at this point, are, are people thinking about applying them as membranes or where, where are we on that, you know, spectrum of things? Uh, there were, uh, there were um, applications coming along in uh, like ultrafiltration membranes. The uh, uh, Germans in particular had, had, uh, had advanced the phase inversion uh, membrane concept and, and were making um, uh, making ultrafiltration membranes and, and ultimately after the Second World War, uh, that technology uh, came to the U.S. through uh, uh, and, and I think it was the basis of the formation of Millipore. Um, so it became a, 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 a major component of filtration uh, market. The war also drove uh, uh, very significant efforts to develop even more synthetic polymers. Um, the uh, uh, governments were concerned, the US government in particular, uh, it, well, as well as Europeans, that all of the rubber for things like, uh, um, you know, military vehicle tires, airplane tires, uh, tank treads came from rubber plantations in, uh, in Indonesia and places like that. And there's concern that uh, uh, enemies might cut those supply lines. And of course, if you don't have tires um, for your, your trucks or your airplanes or treads for your tank, then you know it's, it becomes very difficult to wage war. So there's mm -hmm. a huge effort to um, to develop synthetic uh, materials that um, that wouldn't rely on these enormously long supply chains through what it from that sometimes were uh, hostile uh, waters. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, gotta gotta make polymers if you want to be self sufficient, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and out of that effort, you know, came the uh, um, the stereoregular uh, polymers like Ziegler and Nata, um, making uh, uh, control stereochemistry polyolefins that ignited like the polyethylene polypropylene uh, industries. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. So I guess. Uh, so this is around World War II time, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, the forties. Um, so we're, we're getting a lot of good fundamental knowledge of polymers, new polymers being made, uh, I guess at that point, almost every day, it sounds like. Um, so now we're, we're getting into the middle of the, the 1900s. And, you know, at this point, our, our membranes, you know, coming through, it, it seems like, you know, there, there hasn't been a large industrial application of it yet, but is that, is that coming, coming by at this point? Yeah, so people now are starting to think about things like uh, dialysis, uh, kidney dialysis, um, uh, using natural membrane materials like cellulose acetate. Um, people like uh, Richard Bear in the UK were beginning to study uh, uh, fundamentals of uh, uh, gas uh, permeation in, in some of these new materials like uh, silicone rubber, what you'd refer to as bathtub caulk <laughs> today, um, and uh, ethyl cellulose and 
uh, and other, other types of materials that were becoming newly available. And so starting to uh, uh, characterize the, the uh, just the basic uh, transport properties of those materials. And, and out of that, it emerged uh, that, uh, uh, that these synthetic uh, materials could be used to, uh, uh, to separate gases and ultimately uh, to do things like separate water from ions. Uh, so that became the basis of the desalination industry uh, that um, that began to emerge with membranes, at least in the uh, in the late sixties. So, were there any you know big developments in, in membranes at that point that um, you know that facilitated these applications? Uh, so, not just you know making polymers, but now we're talking about you know being able to to produce membranes in a large scale and you know, going from, uh, you know, polymer synthesis to membrane fabrication, were there any developments in that area? Yeah, so there, uh, it had been recognized, uh, certainly by the 50s, if, if not earlier, that uh, cellulose acetate had a very high selectivity for uh, water over uh, salt, and so that it could uh, uh, selectively permeate water through it and, and not salt, and that would be the basis of desalination. Um, the issue was that uh, the polymer films or membranes, if you will, that could be made were very thick, and so that the uh, rates of transport of water were very slow. Uh, and uh, a couple of graduate students actually uh, uh, in uh, uh, UCLA in the early 60s, Loeb and Suri Rajan, um, uh, discovered what we now call phase inversion process to make um, uh, membranes that were thick on the order of hundreds of microns thick, but they had mainly a porous structure and a very thin micron or a few micron or submicron uh, dense skin that would perform separations. And suddenly they could make cellulose acetate uh, uh, membranes that were a hundred or more times uh, faster in terms of the transport, but had the same separation properties. And this really opened the opportunity to, uh, uh, to make uh, uh, desalination membranes and cellulose acetate would be the first large scale material commercialized uh, for that application. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge advance, right? Um, and so these are, these are students, I guess, they're, so they're, they're graduate students at this mm -hmm. point. Um, like you guys. Like yes. That. Well, you know, just like you, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Freddie is coming up with some uh, nice membrane fabrication techniques with, with the materials he's making. So I just attach stuff and I'll put holes in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's cool to see, uh, you, know, you know, this is happening relatively uh, early still. Um, and so then, you know, I guess focusing on desalination now. So we see the lobes erogen membranes, uh, what's what's coming next in this area and where is it developing you know from the 60s as we go on to you know even even today it, um so there was a, a huge push uh it was recognized that um uh that water uh was a was a problem uh, in the u.s but in other parts of the world as well and uh, that prompted uh, the u.s government to launch a uh um an, an, at the time enormous um effort to uh, uh, develop technological solutions to desalinate uh, water. Uh, President uh, John Kennedy 
pushed that uh, effort quite a bit in the early 60s and said that anyone who could develop uh, a process to desalinate water at an affordable uh, price would deserve two Nobel Prizes, one in science and, and one in peace, um, because people were fighting wars because yeah. they didn't have access to clean water. And uh, out of that came the modern um, polyamide-based uh, synthetic reverse osmosis membrane uh, that emerged in the late 70s. Um, and uh, uh, John Kadat is uh, the father of, uh, of that technology. And uh, those membranes are the basis of the current generation of uh, desalination membranes that are in use around the world. So what, what makes these, you know, those uh, you know, polyamide thin film composite membranes really stand out as, you know, being excellent for desalination? Uh, they could be made, uh, Kadat discovered um, that the uh, interfacial polymerization where you have one, one of the reactants in an oil phase and another in a water phase that, uh, uh, that's sitting on top of the oil phase, uh, and this is all happening in a a porous uh, membrane support that that reaction uh, occurred to make a very dense um, structure so it would have high selectivity for water over salt and that um, it was it was naturally self-quenching so that when the uh, when the membrane became uh, you know a few tens of uh, nanometers uh, thick that the reaction would essentially stop um, because the reactants couldn't get through this, uh, this growing solid membrane at the oil water interface, couldn't get through it to get together very easily. And so you made extremely thin membranes that had uh, much higher selectivity for water over salt than cellulose acetate did. So the combination of, uh, uh, of very uh, thin membranes and, uh, and, a, and a really dense, uh, what we would call cross-linked, uh, polymer network that gave high selectivity, uh, gave uh, water throughput rates and, and salt rejection rates that were just a step change from what cellulose acetate could uh, provide. And so those then became um, the uh, commercial uh, standards. So the, the polymer structure, the network, you know, structure and chemistry basically had inherently higher salt rejection or uh, selectivity for, for water over salt uh, inherently, but they were also very thin. And, you know, because of that, the flux of water could be very high. Is that? That's right. So yeah. I guess in, in comparison with the, uh, the earlier membranes, like what's, what's the difference in thickness looking like for, you know, the thin film composites you're saying, you know, 10 nanometers, let's say. So what's, what's uh, the prior membranes, you know, thickness on the order of? Yeah. So um, you can think about uh, having membranes that are, um, that are on the order of 100 micrometers, 100 microns thick. Mm -hmm. um, we normally say for uh, for uh, for uh, the for modern membranes that they're on the order of uh, a thousand angstroms, 100 nanometers thick. Although some now are are even thinner than that, so that's a tenth of a micron. So that's a um, a difference of uh, a factor of 10 to the third, and that means that the uh, the rate of for a given driving force concentration difference um, across the membrane that the uh, rate of flow through the membrane is higher by a uh, factor of 10 to the third in the, uh, in the uh, thin membranes. Yeah, um, you can also then put that in perspective. Uh, the, um, 
uh, biological ion channels, for example, are on the, on the order of one nanometer. So 100 times thinner than uh, uh, what we can make synthetic membranes or 50 times uh, thinner. And today we don't know how to make such thin membranes without uh, defects that mm -hmm. ultimately destroy uh, selectivity. Mm -hmm. So we still have a ways to go. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're way ahead of where we were, um, but we're not nearly as, uh, as far as, uh, as hopefully we can, yeah. can go. So frontier, yeah, I guess it's very thin membranes that are defect-free and, and are mechanically robust still is, is an important... At lar and produced at large scale. Um, it's one thing to make it defect-free on a, a membrane the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's another to make it defect-free on the size of tens of, size of tens of thousands of square meters of membrane yeah. that would be required for like a world-scale desalination plant. Yeah, I mean, that, that uh, brings up a good point. I mean, a lot of what membrane science is today is, is industrial. So there's always a focus on practicality. Um, and so I guess tying in with that, you know, as we're looking at desalination and, and water purification, how are the applications of membrane, uh, membranes expanding now to, to other things? You know, I know concurrently, you know, we're seeing hydrogels uh, be developed for, for drug delivery controlled mm -hmm. release systems. What are some of the other applications that are, that are occurring and what's, what's changing in the field at this point? Well, there's, um, there has, there's a realization, you know, we had the, uh, uh, in the U.S., we had the, uh, the oil shock in the, in the early 70s. There was an embargo of oil on the, the U.S. We had gasoline lines. Uh, price of uh, oil and gasoline went through the roof, relatively speaking. And so there, there came to be a real focus on, um, uh, on reducing energy. Uh, input or getting more out of a, a barrel of oil or a gallon of gasoline than you could, uh, than we had paid any attention to before. This led to um, um, a whole generation of uh, fuel efficient cars. Um, the uh, uh, Japanese revolution uh, the, uh, that came you know, to, the, uh, to the US shores at that time with small cars like Datsun and Nissan and uh, and so forth, and, and really took share away from American auto manufacturers. Uh, but it had other, um, other implications, and that is things like uh, reducing the weight of, uh, uh, of cargo that was transported from place to place. And, uh, and one of the applications for membranes played a role in that uh, was uh, in the transformation of uh, carbonated sodas like, uh, from glass to plastic. Mm -hmm. And that transition was occurring in the in the 70s at about the same time. And, and there are two huge advantages. One was the enormously lower weight. Uh, and the other was that when you dropped it, uh, it didn't break and make as much of a mess as the glass bottles did. It wasn't a safety hazard. Um, but the, the energy efficiency in, in moving those uh, materials around were a key driver at that point. Um, and several materials were considered um, and the, the rate at which carbon dioxide would leave the product was a, was a key consideration. Uh, ultimately, uh, PET uh, won that uh, battle and became the de facto standard. And if you look at any sort of plastic water bottle or soda bottle on the bottom, if it's got a little one in the recycling triangle, that means it's, uh, it's PET or polyethylene terephthalate, one of the uh, um, one of the polyesters that came out of Carruthers' original efforts uh, at the 
beginning of the 20th century. Wow, yeah, I'm imagining there must be a, you know, large uh, design space there on improving the shelf life of these things when you're putting pla plastic instead of glass. And, and we have to make sure, uh, you know, Freddy's Topo Chico's taste good when he, when he drinks them in the lab and all that. So are you, yeah. are you drinking those in plastic or, or glass no, now? Glass. <laughs> it's glass only. It's old school. It's all, yeah. yeah. The plastic ones come in like large containers. I don't think you can drink them that fast before they oh, go okay. flat. Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Um, well, it's also a good, uh, you know, because the plastic, unlike glass, the plastics do have finite rates of transport of gases. And so if you see, uh, you know, two liter uh, sodas on sale at the at a big box store, you know, four for a dollar, it probably means they're near the end of their shelf life. <laughs> yeah. And so don't buy like a hundred of them and then stick them up in your attic for uh, uh, for six months. You'll probably not be happy with the the uh, results of that. This is, this is what we call inside tips uh, exactly. from, <laughs> you know, experts in polymers and, and plastics. Hey, you know, now you know what to do. Take notes. Avid Everyone drinkers. take notes. Avid, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And about the same time, it, it had long been recognized that uh, polymers, in addition to separating water from, uh, from salt and removing uh, toxins from blood and hemodialysis, that uh, they could separate gases. Um, and uh, that led to a lot of work um, in the 70s. Primarily, uh, one of the big applications initially was uh, to make uh, highly oxygen-enriched air for medical mm -hmm. applications and other applications. That, and that turned out not to work uh, because the membranes, although they're more permeable to oxygen than nitrogen, they don't have high enough selectivity mm -hmm. to uh, to be competitive with things like cryogenic distillation, pressure swing adsorption for making really high purity oxygen. Um, but what did come out of that uh, was uh, uh, other applications. And uh, one of the first big commercial applications was ammonia purge gas. Um, Monsanto, now Air Products, drove that uh, application to put basically a membrane on every uh, ammonia or fertilizer plant uh, in the world. Uh, to separate hydrogen from nitrogen. It turns out those two molecules, relatively speaking, have an enormous difference in size. And as a result of that, uh, membranes can make that separation easily. It also helped that in that particular application, um, the alternative to doing that separation was simply to flare the gas. And, uh, and then you get no value out of it. Whereas uh, this way, the membranes were used to mine the hydrogen Mm. out of that stream and return it to the process. And that really put the gas separation membranes on the map commercially. Uh, it was a, a separation that other technologies couldn't do and that membranes did uh, very well. Um, payback time uh, on those systems were, were quite short um, and it really launched the uh, gas separation business. Wow. Yeah. So what, what, you know, what year was this around? Was this? So about 1980. Okay. In round numbers. So, um, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's still, you know, pretty modern. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40 years, a lot of people listening to this were alive, you know, probably in 1980. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to see that it's evolving so fast, but it's still relatively, you know, recent in, in that regard. Absolutely. Um, this is leisure suits and, mm. you know, long, long hair, <laughs> polyester polyester clothing that's nice. a, yeah that's exactly. a good old days <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice um 
Okay. And so who are like the other, you know, big names going on here and as we're doing, you know, gas separation research, you know, making materials for these new, new applications. Yeah. So the, the uh, uh, in the fifties, uh, so uh, Richard Bear in the UK was very active um, in the U S um, uh, Alan Michaels was one of the, uh, uh, one of the key players as a professor. He was a professor at MIT at the beginning of his career. Um, later started a company called uh, Amicon, Alan Michaels Company, Amicon. And uh, that uh, was, was ultimately, has ultimately been sold and folded into uh, uh, Millipore. Um, a guy named Zaffaroni started, uh, uh, started a control release uh, company out in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the Bay Area that ultimately... Uh, uh, got picked up by Johnson and Johnson, um, and out of Bearer's lab, uh, Richard Baker is uh, a fellow who uh, founded a, uh, a membrane company in, in California named Membrane Technology Research that's had a uh, large presence in the field for basic research and, and applications, particularly in gas separation uh, areas. Um, so Richard Baker was a PhD student with Bearer and, and came and did a postdoc with Alan Michaels um, before going off to uh, uh, join uh, Bend Research with uh, Harry Lonsdale, um, founding editor of the journal Membrane Science. Um, Harry ultimately left the membrane field and, and uh, got in the political sphere, ran a couple times for U.S. Senate uh, in Oregon, didn't, uh, didn't quite make it, but uh, um, but you know, took a, a very different, uh, very different pathway. Um, so there was a guy in uh, uh, in Texas named Don Paul, late sixties, uh, started doing uh, membrane research at the University of Texas, and, and that ultimately became a uh, a world center of expertise in, in this area. So these are things that are going on in the sixties and seventies. Nice. And so you're you're like reading these papers and being. In awe, I guess, since you're you were so interested in that. Yeah, know, wondering who these guys were, and mm -hmm. you know, and and a lot of them were still around, so you mm -hmm. get to meet them at uh, at conferences and things like this. And it's, it's really neat to see the people who wrote the papers. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, so what was that like when you were you know younger? You know, meeting these guys where you read their papers, are you are you like, oh my god, they're a celebrity? Like, you know, do I call them you know doctor this? I call them professor this? And how should I you know say hi? Yeah, there's all of that. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And, yeah. you know, you, you, as you become more chronologically gifted, <laughs> you, uh, you get past some of that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, but that was a lot of fun. It was very influential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so earlier uh, you'd mentioned, you know, membranes being able to do uh, separations based on the size of the molecules. Um, I guess for, for some of the lay audience, um, could you, you know, sort of explain what's the physical basis for these separations, you know, beyond, you know, beyond just size? And what are the other factors that go in into how a membrane is going to be able to, you know, selectively remove one thing versus, you know, permeate the other thing? Um, yeah, there's basically two factors. One is um, that the, uh, uh, the size, so the uh, little molecules generally move faster than bigger ones. And, uh, so that can contribute to selectivity. Um, in order for a molecule to go through a non-porous polymer, it has to dissolve in the polymer. 
And so um, some uh, uh, molecules will dissolve in certain polymers to a greater extent than others. And that also helps, uh, you know, it's only the molecules that are dissolved uh, that can actually move across the membrane and, and participate in, you know, in any sort of separation. And so the extent to which the, um, the molecules are soluble in the polymer and, and their size are the two predominant factors. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very helpful. Okay, so we, we've seen a lot about, you know, the development now of the membrane field, you know, all the way up to, to industry. Um, so I guess looping back to, to current day, um, you know, what are the, the current, you know, practical and fundamental challenges that, that we're seeing? You know, we still are doing, you know, water purification and gas separation. So there's reverse osmosis still going on, and, mm -hmm. you know, these things. Um, what, what's, what's sort of lacking today, both practically and fundamentally in, in your mind? Well, uh, if you think about like the big applications, they were, uh, they were often built around uh, a, a singular problem. So desalting uh, seawater uh, was a big one that sparked the development of, uh, of modern desalination membranes. And now um, we call on those membranes or technologies to uh, help us in other ways in water purification. So. Um, in recovering, uh, you know, people talk about recycling water, so taking wastewater and converting it to drinking water, and um, and you'd be surprised what's in uh, people's wastewater. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, caffeine, um, antidepressants, all, all sorts of medication makes it into uh, into the water supply, and and the membranes were never um, never developed originally, you know with those kinds of considerations in mind, thinking that they would have to sell, separate those kind of components. And, and they're largely not very good at it, but, you know, just, uh, and so there's an, an opportunity there to develop membranes with better property profiles to clean up water that we used to, you know, never try to clean up. Um, there's uh, uh, the hydraulic fracturing uh, boom, the shale gas revolution has uh, consumes and generates uh, enormous amounts of water. And a lot of that water that's generated is, is highly polluted. It's only, uh, uh, it's put back into the ground and disposal wells basically to get rid of it. And if we could uh, separate it uh, at a, at efficiently, uh, we could uh, use a lot of that water because it's often produced in areas that are, uh, that are very, very dry. Um, they're, they're issues that come up uh, as we move towards an electric electrified uh, society um, the need for batteries is has grown exponentially and today that technology is based on uh, lithium-ion batteries and so the need to recover lithium uh, which often appears in in brines or in, in water the need to selectively recover lithium from water is, is another uh, frontier area for membranes. Um, there are always, uh, you know, the medical applications uh, would be enormous uh, controlled uh, drug delivery, uh, improved hemodialysis membranes. Uh, the membranes today, uh, even though they're based on um, synthetic materials uh, like uh, polysulfone that replace the cellulose acetate because they had better separation profiles are far from perfect. And as a result, uh, 
kidney dialysis is not a substitute for, uh, for having um, naturally functioning kidneys. And so there's a lot of room there to improve the uh, selectivity properties that, to basically lengthen people's lives. Mm. Um, the, um, uh, so there's, there's applications in the water space. There's also, uh, you know, if we could make uh, materials that were more selective for like oxygen over nitrogen, we could fulfill some of the original uh, hope of uh, making highly purified oxygen uh, for medical application and industrial applications, um, but we're not uh, we're not there yet. Um, uh, increasing the longevity of membranes by increasing their chemical thermal resistance, um, uh, more mechanically stable membranes um, would all contribute towards uh, broadening the base of the technology and, and the applications for it. Yeah, yeah, it's just a large, uh, large amount of things to still work on. Luckily for for me and Freddie, <laughs> you know, uh, keep us busy. No, he's been working in the in the water space with uh, some of the more difficult to remove solutes like boron. I don't know if you want to give a little little spiel on your your beautiful membranes, Freddie. Uh, other than finding because lithium, as Dr. Freeman mentioned, is, has charge to it, so it's still complicated. But boron is a more it's a neutral containment species mm -hmm. that seems to pass through, not as uh, not readily enough that it's dangerous, but it, it can pass through or right, has right. shown low selectivity. It's not getting rejected by the electrostatics at the right. salt is, so right. you know, it goes through the membrane. And right, and, but it, and still at neutral pHs, it can be a board acid states mm -hmm. where normally it's so they apply a, a commercial resin, amber, let's say amberline, okay. I can't remember the specific number off, but it's they use a particular polyol functionality uh, and methyl D-glucamine which is just a, uh, they attach it to the polymer resin and they build it up and it chelates well with boric acid. So basically water. like a ligand that sort of binds this, right. this boron. And the issues with that is it's a resin, right? And it's like a, like a recharge time zone. It'll build up mm -hmm. on the feed side. Whereas if you kind of attach it to, let's say, a membrane per se, it'd be an easier, uh, you would avoid the buildup kind of right. charges right. where it would have more of a benefit of uh, allowing for either sorbing it enough that it slows the diffusion of it or you separate it out only and then you can kind of separate them out from clean water and just pour on yeah. and reject it. And so you're making these these films in the lab um, yeah. basically functionalized with the ligand group, but they're in they're in the polymer, they're in the membrane. You can try to do tests to see what they would do mm -hmm. in membrane-like performance. Right. Okay. Research scale. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it's on a polymer platform that you could theoretically attach, hopefully, Many other things that the chemical groups line up right where if it's an amine that'll attack what i have on the platform you can attach anything with an amine functionality to it to mainly to uh, achieve whatever selection the chemical separation or selection yeah. you want it's a very very clickable platform and right so getting into what you know so you professor freeman's mentioning is we're making advances in polymer science that basically give you membranes and structures that can look at particular contaminants that are hard to remove today with conventional membranes is what you're right instead of rejecting kind of all of them on. or letting them all pass through we want to selectively pick ones we want yeah ideally nice. mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, that's exciting so that's a little little plug for for freddie and his, his membranes i think yeah, it sounds much. like they're they're uh, they made some good progress so you know getting close to publication right that's the that's the so. goal here publish or perish <laughs> <laughs> Matt and I have gotten all the, the edits from the round of PIs that we've been working on. So, yeah. Nice. Nice. That's, that's good work that's going on. Um, 
Yeah, and it's going in this week, right? I believe so. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Because <laughs> Nate's looked at it, you've looked at it. I believe Matt has gotten Lynn to look at it. Tight, that tight ship over here. Oh, yeah. Nice. All right. Well, um, yeah, I guess maybe the, the last thing I would I would ask is, uh, you know, or, you know, obviously you mentioned, you know, being a professor now for, for over over 30 years. Um, you know, recently, recently had a birthday at the time of filming this, so happy belated birthday. Um, Thank you. you. know, are there any reflections from your experience, you know, watching this field grow, you know, living through it and then, you know, mentoring, uh, you know, crazy students, you know, like us for, for like the last 30 years? <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really neat to have a ringside seat and you know, to watch <laughs> the uh, technology grow up and the applications emerge and just absolutely fascinating. And uh, and now to watch uh, uh, students, you know, to uh, to be involved with students at a uh, when they're young at pivotal times in their lives, when they're picking, you know, directions that they're going to go and things they're going to do, and and to have uh, uh, to be a part of their lives at that point and help with their training, and then watch where they go afterwards has been an enormous uh, pleasure. It's a little bit like parenting, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, so I uh, view that I uh, have a, a large extended uh, family um, <laughs> that's a, a enormously fun to keep track of and, uh, and to interact with. Parenting a bunch of teenagers here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we, we definitely uh, enjoy it too. You know, being a PhD student's very, very interesting and fun in, in a lot of ways. Uh, so. I save the fun part so yeah yeah fun <laughs> um yeah i mean so yeah i think that's i don't know Freddie, do you have any anything else you're you're interested in asking or talking about or i did but i lost it five minutes ago and they were like he said something and i was like i kind of want to ask about that but i cannot remember well what do they say that means something must not be that important so saying is no I'm kidding i don't know exactly. uh, <laughs> well it's, yeah I mean, must uh, have been crucial it must have been absolutely necessary no well, but other than that no well, yeah, luckily you'll uh, be able to ask them uh, questions when we have a meeting in another hour or two, you know, classic, exactly. you know, Fridays in academia, all the, all the meetings all the get meetings. stacked on and on and on. So, you know, yeah, so get your opportunity. It's absolutely glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'm hoping uh, there's, there's a fun, happy hour afterwards to, to why not, to, you know, <laughs> use well. that. Yeah. So yeah we got to, we got to repeat the Abbey No Lays experiments every Friday, you know, just, <laughs> Just uh, something with uh, with the spirits or the wine. <laughs> all right. Well. Well. Anyway, I think that's that's all we're we'll end today. So thank you for uh, for joining us today, thank Professor you. Freeman. Appreciate all the effort yeah, thank you guys have put into this. Of course.